Revenge of the 80s Kids, has been rated P for podcast. have a problem. It's called How the Duck. Every man has his breaking point, a principle that he will not cross. I have mine, and it is that film. And ladies and gentlemen, right here and right now, I have a letter of resignation. I am resigning no, my wait, post wait, this Ian. podcast for... Yes? This isn't about Howard the Duck, is it? This is about that whole nasty business with Doctor Who a couple of weeks back. Look, right... There's more to 1986 than Howard the Duck. I mean, yes, okay. so 1986 did bring us one of the most woeful and strangest ideas, which was that we would want to see a duck prancing around with Lee Thompson in her underwear. But there's more to 1986. There's there's so much more. And as a special, we're going to try and dissuade you. And we've brought in a special consultant. Uh, to help you, you know, come to terms with the 1986 thing, and that is the wife. Hello, wife. Hello. Why Why are you particularly joining us for this episode? Uh, every film I love came out in 1986. Pretty much the best of the bunch came out in 1986, as far as I'm concerned. You I, are, of I, course, I, referring to Howard the Duck. No, I, I, I'm looking through this film, film list just going... Oh my god, yeah, I love that film. Oh my god, I love that film. Oh my god, I love that film. It's like every film I've ever, ever had any affection for or love for for is in this list. So yeah, I love nineteen eighty six. It's the best year for films for me. So yeah. So there we go. So Sue's gonna help you and we're here too for you. That is me, Leo, one of the eighties kids. I am Ian, I am another one of the eighties kids. And gentlemen, it's just that how the dark it was Lucas film. It was right there. It was right there in plain sight the whole time. George Lucas is an idiot. But we forgave him for it. We forgave him. <laughs> Calm down. Can we apply Anyway, the I am not alone. Yeah. I am also joined by my fellow 80s kid who's consoling me right now, whose name would happen to be? It's it's Justin, and uh, I'm just applying the medication now, so Ian, Ian is calm. Yeah. Justin, you're going to have to want to save a bit of that uh, medication, because we haven't reached the year in which Lucas released Slipstream yet. Ah, yes. Uh, well, I'll need, that to, I'll need to self-medicate that. <laughs> but we don't But we, we, we don't have time to dwell on such matters, no. but there are too many films to go through. And who, who better to choose the first topic for brief discussion than, than the wife herself? Sue, what is your first choice? A film from 1986. Can I pick any? You can pick any film because we haven't picked one yet. Oh, well, in that case, then, I'm going to pick possibly one of my favourites and pick Labyrinth, then. Ah, uh, yes. Labyrinth. An interesting uh, film uh, for many reasons. The, the one thing that I noticed, we watched this last night uh, for research purposes, and what immediately leapt to my mind is that they would never make Labyrinth today. It just, It just wouldn't happen because... The philosophy, I believe, of Labyrinth was, well, we've got that guy from Monty Python and we've got, you know, the puppets from the Muppet guy and we've got David Bowie. How can we possibly go wrong? 
And these days people would say those things, you know, it's a bit like putting together, I don't know, bacon and cheesecake. It doesn't, just because they're good by themselves doesn't necessarily mean they're good. In 1986, we didn't care. And I think the the results are better than they have possibly a right to be. Well, I, think uh, gentlemen? Actually, I think what was actually going on was they'd made Dark Crystal, and that was very artistic, but probably a bit of a flop because it was just so unremittingly grim. And so said, hey, let's make another film of puppets. This time, let's set, get some jokes in there. Let's have some songs. I think I think it was pretty much what they were thinking. Because they gave, they gave Dave Bowie the Dark Crystal to look at to show them, look, this, when we say puppets, this is what we mean. We don't mean the Muppet Show, and and yeah, I think I think I kind of kind of sold him on it. Oh yeah, I mean I, I, the thing about it is David Bowie is a, is a legend, and it, you know he's doing work that is is fascinating, and the songs he wrote are interesting for various reasons. But given all of the fantasy that came out in in the nineteen eighties, Labyrinth is a bit of a odd thing i mean it's it's kind of like it's very clear that um terry jones who wrote the script was taking a lot of you know inspiration from classic children's stories uh, i saw clear influences alice in wonderland and peter pan in there in particular it's just the thought that they thought that just by having big names and munging it all together into a single product that that would necessarily lead to I, think, to I think some of it as well is you've misunderstood some of the the point of that story is it's very much about her growing up and realizing what's important to her yeah it is very much a tale of a girl who's spoilt and brattish and thinks that she's hard done by when she's really not and growing up and realising she's not, and realising that it's okay having a little bit of fantasy and a little bit of, you know, imagination in your life, but it shouldn't be all that's your life, if you know what I mean. And the ending kind of explains that with this, sometimes every now and again, I just need you for no reason, I just need you. But it's so funny, it's so warm it's so loving in the way that it does the things that it does the monsters in particular i mean ludo's one of the best monsters ever done he's absolutely he looks good but his personality comes across you get a personality from this this monster and i think that's what makes it work you know what i mean it's got all the warmth that you need from it children can fall in love with it and adults can fall in love with it justin yeah absolutely labyrinth? i mean i the labyrinth is probably what yeah is, is up there one of my favorite films and i think you're right i mean it, it just looks spectacular for one thing it just looks you know like um all the stuff that they kind of learned on dark crystal which because it didn't have any humans in it it was kind of a bit distant a bit kind of strange and yes very dark but it took it took all those it took the kind of craft of that you know and these aren't you know, there's there's these are a lot way down the road from kind of Muppets in terms of the sophistication, um, and you know, and they used the same illustrator Brian Frow for the kind of goblin designs they did on Dark Crystal. So I mean, it just yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of crazy. Um, it's very memorable. I mean, I think you kind of it's difficult to forget those kind of scenes in the labyrinth and the just the, the particular the look on it. I mean, I loved it. It's something I would have watched a few times over this period. And and I think it was very much a product of, you know, 1986, specifically, 
because of all the things that had come before it and the fact that the more 80s movies I'm watching now, the more I'm realising that we had a period in the 80s where synthesizers were cheap, synthesised scores were cheap to produce, and um, this remains to be the case this day. But synthesizers were very early in their development at this time. Yeah. Now you get these movies such as the recent you know, White House Down and anything with a big sort of uh, pumping orchestral score. And you're like, wow, what a crazy orchestral score. And that's actually written by a guy with a bunch of synthesizers sitting in a tiny little studio because our synthesized sampled sounds are so much clearer and able of imitating an orchestra. So why would anyone do something with that kind of score now? Because those are all the old sounds of when we didn't have the processing power to produce it. But that means that we're never going to see, except as a kind of pastiche or imitation, the kind of score that you got in an 80s movie. And, and Labyrinth has that as well. You know, technically, you know, if you're going to, if you showed it to someone who was born yesterday, uh, with a fully formed critical faculty. They say, but it's not very coherent. It's like, yeah, it's it's not, but you have to understand that it is a thing. Well, also, children's films always, you know, the theory was in those days, you keep moving things on every ten minutes. You don't dwell on something for too long. You just keep, keep moving along, keep moving along, keep giving new things. And that does give a definite sense of journey to the story. Um, yes. I always find it quite interesting that uh, the antagonist protagonist relationship is very interesting she's not it's not a series of goofy kids having adventures in the labyrinth it's just it's just young woman which is basically what she is and the antagonist is kind of in love with her and you know basically it's about i kind of want to bone you uh, but you're not quite there yet but give it time uh and you know it, it's 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 like it's almost obsessiveness about them and the whole song about you know everything i do i, I do for you which sounds like a love song but isn't it's it's a condemnation of her, that he's, he's, she, everything she's wanted, she's got. You don't want, don't want your annoying little brother. You've been an only child for the first sixteen years of your life. Well, I'll take that baby away from you. What do you mean you want him back? Oh, for goodness' sake, woman! Yeah, that was that seemed quite interesting on reflection. There's the the quotation mark kid is not annoying, uh, and she's in fact quite intelligent, uh, and you know does the old. One door is lying, one door is telling the truth puzzle, which is a ye, ye oldie timey story that you've got to tell every generation at some point. Yeah, I, I have no problems with Labyrinth. I think that's a, a wonderful film from, from my childhood as well. So, um, Justin, uh, you make a pick from the list. What would you uh, like I'm to talk I'm probably going to hone straight into Aliens because I think this is something that um, I don't I'm very passionate for, but I mean, I think this was had a kind of a huge impact on me. I obviously was a bit too young to actually see the original lady, and so I was probably I may not have even seen it up to this point, or or it would have only been very recently if I had. And I think that it very much stands in its own film because it's clearly got all the kind of trappings that you would want from an alien film, but you know it's a very different thing. There are obviously it's 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 obviously got the kind of soldiers in it, so it, it's more kind of soldiers versus aliens rather than this kind of uh, the claustrophobia of the original film um and i just i mean visually um i remember being kind of very kind of enwrapped by the whole idea of just the you know i mean i know i think 
in terms of movies and cinematic history, I think it's the, the climactic battle between Sigourney Weaver, you know, kind of robotic kind of harness versus the alien queen is one of those all time battles. I think that you're, you're not going to forget, you know, there, there are kind of certain scenes in, in, in that kind of history. So that, that stands up there, I think. I think it's one of the most famous <laughs> lines ever quoted as well. Get away yeah. from her, you bitch, you know, it's yeah. absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I think I've always liked the Ripley character because, you know, I know famously she was um, obviously originally intended as a male part. And um, at that time, you weren't seeing that kind of it's rare now, to be honest. But I mean, there, that kind of strong, empowering kind of character that could just take on, you know, this ridiculous creature, you know, and beat it. I always kind of was kind of very impressed with. But, uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's one of those, you know. I, I think Cameron is very good. He's not necessarily his ideas aren't necessarily original, but he's very good at polishing them up very well and delivering them back yeah. in a very good package. He understands the science fiction genre. I think in many ways he defined what science fiction genre was going to be like for quite some time afterwards. He was a very influential film is Little Aliens, and also you know it's. It's an interesting story arc. You take Ripley at the survivor of the first film, and he kind of set her up as a post-traumatic uh, sufferer for the second film. And going back is more about con- confronting this fear that she has. It ends a very yeah. nice arc, and also the fact that she does kind of gain a family uh, over the course of the story as well. It is so it's so it's you know it, it's it's played in very nicely to the thematics of you know the first film was about birth and being born the trauma of that the second film was about life and blah, blah, blah. the third film is death and then rebirth and so yeah aliens it is absolutely iconic I did not see it at the time I was far too young uh, I saw it many years probably much later eighties and it was it was fairly mind blowing to me at the time the first time it exposes that idea. These sort of this, this, these sorts of films like this, and it gave you the impression that all grown-up films were bloody awesome, which is mm-hmm. sadly untrue. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think also for me, this is kind of where the Alien franchise ends. There's other films, and people enjoy them, but for me, this is like you know, <laughs> the, these are the Old Testament. You know, Alien, yeah. Aliens, boom. Nothing, no good can come from continuing these stories any further. It, it's kind of a perfect package as it stands. Yeah, I mean, I, I I have some affection for the movie. I think what's happened to me with Aliens is, at the time when I, Aliens came out, I had seen Alien because I had the comic book and because it had been on television, broadcast television, and my dad had taped it onto a tape. And he said, you know, if you can stand that one scene, you know, the one I'm talking about, then you may as well watch the rest of it. And so I, I was well versed. And when they said there was going to be a film called Aliens, I mean, that's the genius part, yes. isn't it? Taking the title of the first movie, whacking an S on the end, you pretty much know what you're going to get. I was like, well, I found the first one quite harrowing. I think I'm going to avoid this for a while. Mm. And then when I was older, I was like, right, I'm going to watch this now. I'm going to sit down and I watch it. And I think then after a while, you watch it, you know, I watched it. I was like, wow, that was great. Watched it again, watched it again. You watch quite a lot. There was quite a lot of, you know, rewatching Aliens. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think when you're a kid, you rewatch movies over and over again anyway. But it didn't hurt, I imagine, that the 90s were so bereft of good things on telly that you went, oh, watch Aliens again. And then for a while I was like, oh, I'm so over Aliens. And now I've kind of come back to it again as being, you know, like I can appreciate it for what it is and then, you know, go through the beats again. 
as it was. So, yes, Aliens, uh, good pick. Ian, uh, would you like to pick from the list? Well, I similarly will continue to pursue uh, science fiction franchises. I should be talking about Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Ah. It's generally one of the more beloved Star Trek films. It is an even-numbered Star Trek film, and therefore it must be good. For me at the time, I was disappointed, because up until that stage, it had been, you know, Wrath of Khan, Star Trek III. This is all about space battles, and death, and sacrifice. And suddenly you have The Voyage Home, which is essentially the Star Trek characters in modern-day Earth, and it's a little bit of a comedy about them saving whales for contrived reasons. Actually, it's kind of a remake of the first movie, because it's a, it's a strange alien probe has reached Earth, and crisis ensues. I understand the filmmaker's choices, because uh, Star Trek Star Trek II may be brilliant, but Star Trek III continues the themes of Star Trek II, and, and does it kind of in a nasty, brutal sense. You have, you know, they, they disobey the Federation and go, and go rogue, they blow up the Enterprise, and Kirk's son gets stabbed to death by a Klingon. These are, these are all fairly nasty things to happen just to get Spock back. Uh, and, you know, the team isn't even un- reunited with Spock until the very end of the last movie. So this time, let's go back and have some fun and let's do some time travel for reasons. And, yeah, I suppose, in retrospect, it's a very nice kind of... If, if you're watching the Star- original six classic uh, Star Trek movie things, it's it's a very nice episodic slot that you have this this kind of breather there. It's it's kind of nice. I think in many ways the crew fits rather nicely on the bird of prey more than it does so on the Enterprise, because they can all just go off and do their own thing because they are the crew. Whereas you know, ordinarily Scotty needs to stay in engineering the whole time, but now he's got a job to do because there's no one else to do it. So yeah, I think it's kind of nice how they all kind of separate out and do their own thing and they get their own get, get to, just to get these goddamn whales back to talk to the alien probe to ask it not to kill us, please. Thank you. I think this might just be me again because I'm into quotability of movies but again this again it was very quotable with the where are the nuclear weapons <laughs> where are the nuclear vessels vessels was it vessels vessels where are yes, the nuclear and, vessels and, and, and I remember Spock on a bus um Spock on the punk guy yeah. yes that was quite funny I remembered that so they kind of it was a bit more comedy if I remember rightly it was very much more yes. comedy like, so, so, I think there's a, there, I mean, there's a whole meta level to the yeah. movie, of course, is that the, the crew of the Starship Enterprise, even as the movies came out, continued to be, um, you know, a cast of a show from the late 1960s. And so, therefore, it was like weird. It's like the retro future from the 1960s goes to the modern world of, you know, 1985, <laughs> 1986, and the culture shock is simultaneously people from the utopian future and the sort of idea of people from television in the 1960s meeting people from the rough present, mm. you know. So there's this kind of meta level in which it's this idea of inserting characters from America's past however much it's meant to be the future, it, it, into the modern day of America. I think it was also much more allowed to enjoy the characters a lot more than you were in the more brutal stories where war was going on. Also, it's about them overcoming a problem, which I think is much more of a Star Trek thing than being militaristic about what's going on. Uh, a little factoid, just, just to round up my thoughts on it, uh, the whale expert in the movie, I believe that was originally supposed to be played by Eddie Murphy who uh, dropped out. <laughs> so just imagine an alternative right. universe with Eddie Murphy and, and Kirk together. <laughs> that would have been crazy. I, yeah, I remember this affectionately. I mean, I remember all the Star Trek films, really, watching them from one, one of my mate's bedroom 
you know, as we did kind of huddled around a small video player. And um, this was definitely one we kind of got a lot out of, I think. Um, I think it's absolutely right. It's kind of what you've said, really, as a as a as a departure from, you know, the normal kind of problems. I think it's a welcome kind of relief and, you know, a kind of a, uh, a certainly welcome kind of moment of kind of lightheartedness. There's very silly stuff going on there. There's fun, you know, there's kind of little nods and winks to the camera and, you know, um, to the audience. I think it's a, I, I think it's a very charming kind of little film, really. Uh, I'm sure the cast would have enjoyed themselves on this. Well, most of them, maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you should mention Eddie Murphy, Ian, because uh, I'm going to segue now into my uh, top pick, which will probably be uh, The Golden Child, <laughs> which is odd. That, uh, I understand that Eddie Murphy is not keen on The Golden Child. Presumably, he is keen on Norbit, being as that was his idea. <laughs> so that just tells me that me and Mr. Murphy have very little to discuss with one another, as I think The Golden Child is one of one of the key movies of the 80s, combining as it does that sort of Eddie Murphy, that kind of idea of having a stand-up comedy as this comedian, as the action hero. It had sort of the Eastern mysticism. Um, it had, you know, monsters. Charles Dance turning into a giant bat thing. And the idea of those skits, it was like, you know, Beverly Hills Cop meets Big Trouble in Little China. Another film which came out in 1986. But it had that, that sort of impetus, this idea of, of taking sort of some incredibly serious contemporary fantasy horror you know, almost horrific setup, and then introducing this vein of of irreverent humour. I'm I'm not even sure how it did at the box office. I mean, I'm sure it did okay, but yeah, I remember I went to see it by myself in uh, a single screen cinema for such things existed back in those days, and going, yeah, you know, I remember the poster, I remember seeing a clip from it, and I walked from my home to go and see this film, and I was not disappointed. Oh, and not only that, but I'd misread the time, so I ended up having to kill an hour walking around town, waiting for the show to begin. And then I got in, and I watched it, and it was totally worth the whole experience. So, yeah, uh, an awesome, awesome film, just in, for so many reasons. Uh, that I would like to. I like do you to like do. the Golden Child? I do like the Golden Child. I think it's pro- again. I kind of agree with you. It's got this kind of quirkiness to it, but also this kind of almost like supernatural horror element to it. It kind of makes things now like Supernatural, the TV series, stand up because if the Golden Child hadn't kind of been made, I'm not sure those kind of things would have come later. It's kind of weird because you kind of needed that being able, again, that kind of being able to quip your way through things and kind of throw fun at things when you're in that kind of dire straight situation. Well, it is that amazing point, isn't it? Yeah. Where after the bit where he gets through customs or gets the sort of sacrificial dagger off him mm-hmm. using the my faithful brother Nomsi has forgiven me yeah. skit, he walks into a warehouse at the end and he goes, my faithful brother Nomsi turns into giant 20 foot high yeah. bat wing demon. I can see you're busy right now. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the joy of that film is that, you know, it's all that kind of fun quips being thrown at some of the most I mean, now horrible I, situations. Now I come to talk about it, we say that, you know, I, I said uh, in previous episode about Ghostbusters not being able to bottle that lightning again. 
But in a way, The Golden Child is a sort of spiritual successor to Ghostbusters because it does take exactly the same line of people quipping their way through supernatural horror. Um, So, you know, there it is. And and I know that The Golden Child wasn't as big as Ghostbusters or as well regarded or any of that stuff, but it is. No, I think it's become a bit of an underground cult classic as Golden Child. I think people really do love it, but I don't think they remember they love it until they see it. And then they go, oh, yeah, I love this film. Yeah. I think it's Definitely. one of those. Uh, lads, yeah. weighing in on the Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I can't say it's one of my favourite films ever, but I was certainly I, I enjoyed all the kind of mix of of what you described, the kind of uh, the Eddie Murphyisms and and the uh, kind of crazy uh, fantasy aspect. So yeah, that was a good film. Yeah, I have no trouble, no problem with this film whatsoever. It it's not one I've like you know waked up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night going, I must go get the DVD of that. But it's it's it was something that was never a problem to watch when it came on television. Shame it hasn't been on for quite some time. Well, I, I happen to have the DVD of it, and I am a bit uh, disappointed I didn't get to watch it during my research week. May even break the bounds of research and go and watch it anyway, even though we've done the show now. So, yeah, um, definitely... I mean, it's, it's interesting that you're luke, I mean, not lukewarm exactly. I do get the feeling it's like uh, uh, damning with faint praise. It is probably one of my favourite movies ever. No, so, not, not uh, at all. It's like, I, I don't have any problem with this film. I've watched it. I've enjoyed it. Um, I, it's it's not one that uh, lingered and haunted my mind. I didn't go out there and play golden child games with my friends in the playground um, or anything like that. It, it was just kind of like, well, that was a that was a perfectly acceptable movie. It had lots of things. My friends were kind of into because they were really big in, in, into Indiana Jones and that kind of had an element of that in there as well with like supernatural think, ancient temples and so forth. I think you've brought up a very good point there, which is it would actually be very difficult for a child to play a sort of golden child game and playground because it's so relied upon. Um, I mean, you know, I always got the impression when you play Ghostbusters that there was something missing. And that thing is that vein of quick-witted replies to things. The golden child relied on that so heavily that you couldn't take it out of the cinema because it didn't seem as good. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think... I don't. I mean, as, as disadvantages of a film go, the fact that you can't repeat it uh, possibly isn't one of the uh, possibly isn't a big one. There we go. Sue, uh, a choice. A choice. Oh, well, I suppose I'm going to have to do it, aren't I? See you later, Navigator. Well, this of course <laughs> is one of was one of your top five films of the 1980s. It has to be Flight of the Navigator. It's possibly one of the best films ever made, ever. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care if you're in the 80s, 90s, 70s now. I don't care what anybody says. That film is still a remarkable film. It is possibly one of the best films ever made. I don't care what anybody says. Brilliant film. Beautiful. Beautifully shot. Wonderfully worked. Brilliant casting. Great quips between the characters in there. The machine itself, Max, the actual spaceship, compared to that lad, the way they work together. Bearing in mind, it is an anamina object he's talking to. It's wonderful. It's absolutely brilliant. It's humorous. It's warm. It's funny. But at the same time, it's got all that sci-fi that you could ever want. It's got a plot that is amazing because if you think about how simple yet how complex that plot is, it's just Perfect. I don't care. I don't care. It's one of the best films ever. So to me, that's that's 
a film that everybody should watch. Well, I have things to say, but guys, Flight to the Navigator. <laughs> I mean, I remember, yeah, I remember enjoying it. It's what is strange about, I always picture this to be kind of a later film. I was quite surprised when I discovered this this year because it actually, because of the plot, it kind of, it has time travel involving kind of the, I guess the heart, the kind of Spielbergian years. And then we're, we're still kind of within that though. And I always imagined it was more like affectionately looking back at that kind of era, but it's very much in it. So that's, that has surprised me. But I mean, I think, um, yeah, it's probably the last of that kind of feel, I think, of films that were still on the, uh, on the, co- co- uh, of the coattails of, of Spielberg. And, um, I think it's a fun film. I think, um, it was visually kind of quite stunning. That kind of silver ship was very memorable. And I agree with what you're saying, really, so the interaction, because the way that kind of head and would kind of look round, yeah, um, was kind of worked, you know. Well, as, if, you watch, if you watch back the scene where they're singing together, for instance, yeah. and he's moving his head with the, in time with the child, and you know the eyes blinking up and down, that's that's basically a little metal head, and yet it's got more emotion than most humans have. If you get what yeah. I mean, it's really well done. It's beautiful. I would like to uh, highlight just how long the movie takes to get to the meat, uh, because it does have quite a kind of a mystery thriller going on at the start, with a boy out of his time turning up, finding out that his parents, years have elapsed, his parents think he's lost, dead, missing, and have moved away. His younger brother is now his much older brother. Uh, And, you know, he goes away to the, you know, special special NASA camp or wherever it was and they're doing tests on him there and then he discovers the ship and then he goes on board and the machine doesn't become goofy until it scanned his brain which is a bit of, bit of a yeah. while later after it that. It takes his personality, yeah. So it really does take a while to get to the ver- the part that we all remember which is not to say that that's bad. It, I think it, 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 it intrigues you into that. I think the answer to all the mystery that it has is brilliant and actually kind of makes sense because, you know, you travel faster than light uh, then, you know, the, the outside world would, you know, all the physics of that match up, you would come back and it'll be years later, even though for you it would be a much shorter point of time. You know, um, So that's real science. I'm always happy to reward that whenever it turns up in a movie. I think the kid was a pretty good actor for his age. I don't recall him being particularly annoying. Um, I, I, I think you know, it, it all kind of resolves nicely in the end with him going back to his... Spoilers, everyone, going back to his proper place and time. You know... Meeting his younger brother and not finding him this annoying kid he wants to dismiss, but going like, well, he's like, he's, you know, he's he made a connection with his older brother that he has with his foreknowledge that, you know, his younger brother is kind of cool as well. Uh, it's a really nice, wonderful film, and I get it's a film with no bad guys. There's no nasty aliens who want to destroy the universe. It's just a, a bit of a mix-up with, with an alien machine that had to dump some of its files into a human brain for a while, as far as I can understand. It's just a technology going a bit, a bit of a, a bit awry. So there's no there's no nastiness other than the American government not being particularly pleased about a flying saucer zipping here, there, and everywhere uh, without any control over it. I mean, yeah, the, the, I mean, things that I uh, noted upon our review um, the other night. First of all, this is a film produced by no one, directed by no one. I mean, these are not, you know, and it is very much like trying to cash in on the Spielberg thing. But for my money, to a certain extent. Flight of the Navigator out Spielberg's Spielberg. Because, for a start, it doesn't have Spielberg's obsession with broken families. The family is a family. It's a normal family. And, you know, his relationship with his brother is a normal relationship with a normal brother. And when he disappears, presumably dead, his parents 
find a way to get through it. And then they're all a bit confused. And, I mean, the fact of that moment where, at the beginning, it fakes the, the audience out several times with, oh, is it a flying saucer? No, it's a frisbee. Oh, is it a flying saucer? No, it's a good yibbling. Oh, is it a flying saucer? No, it's a water tower. And then he falls over in the woods and wakes up, and it's eight years later. And it's like, I even remember that in the cinema, that I think to a certain extent what the person who wrote that and the well, the crew, the people who made that film understand is that if you, there is a certain uh, type of film, Labyrinth is one of them, where you get down to it, you know, six minutes, uh, you're going across the labyrinth to the Goblin Castle, off you go, cheers, bye. And then there's a different type of film where you've advertised a film where a boy flies a flying saucer, you know, across the face of the earth in a big, has a big science fiction adventure, where actually the crowd might find it intriguing if you just sell them a, a sideways thing at the beginning where they go, I don't I'm not, I'm not sure what film I'm watching now. I mean, it absolutely works 100% when he gets home. And the way that the director set it up so that you get all the same shots, he crosses the railway tracks, there's the house through the bush, and he knocks on the door, and then somebody else answers the door. And that, it gets down to that pretty quickly, but it's that moment where you're like, hang on, what about the flying saucer? And you are right there with the kid because you're confused for different reasons than he is, but it doesn't matter in your emotional mind. You're like, I don't understand what's going on. And from that moment on, you're right with him all the way down the line as everything comes up. And as the mystery is unpicked, you are right there with it. And I have to say, that flying saucer special effect is is freaking awesome. You know, bearing in mind the fact that this was a second string picture made by a very small studio that didn't have, you know, the the sort of resources or, or, you know, ingenuity at their beck and call that other studios had. It's it's just incredible. It's just an incredible movie. And that special effect is, is, is crazy good as well. Well, considering uh, so, yeah. this, is, this predates what was seen to be uh, the big old thing about special effects Terminator 2, this is predate, predating that by a few years. Yeah. So that's pretty spectacular, really. Um, I mean, obviously what they had uh, available to them was someone who was, like, probably nudging them, saying, well, we can't pull off X, but we could probably do Y, and we can't do this, but we can do that. And basically, they must have just picked their battles very carefully and gone we can make this look awesome and we can make that look awesome. And then they probably steered them around all the elephant traps of, no, if we do that, it'll look rubbish. So, you know, I mean, one of the the things that they repeat a couple of times is the bit where the door comes down and turns into steps. And then these steps seem to be hanging in midair. And it's all done with, like, well, we put the camera at a special angle. So actually, they're kind of, like, in the ground, but with counterweights and stuff holding them up. But from this angle, it looks like they're floating in space. And then they have people going up and down the steps. And it's like, it's all very smoke and mirrors. But at the same time, it's very delightful. Yeah. Yeah, good choice. A nice little film. So, yeah, Flight of the Navigator. I would highly recommend it. Anybody who has not seen that film, go and watch that film. It's an amazing film. And, and marvel at the fact that as you watch the credits, right at the beginning, as I did the other night, because I imagine that I'd just forgotten that someone significant was involved in it. No. Yeah, I think the only famous person in there is Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah, um, and she doesn't even play a main role. No, so there I think go. that's it. I mean, there's a couple of well-known TV actors yeah. in there, but yeah, it's really not 
you know. For some and, reason, yeah. I, I imagined it was Disney, and I don't think it is. Is it's not? No, no, it's no, no major. That. Yeah, it's it's this was made with by nobody with a budget of nothing, and they made one of the probably one of the best films to ever come out of, the of, of that type of kind of youthful adventure. Yeah. It, it definitely. No, you know, I, need you, I need to watch it again. I think it, it stands shoulder sh- to shoulder with something like Joe Dante's Explorers, and that's no mean feat for something that just didn't have the same sort of muscle behind it. So, Justin, yeah. uh, your next pick. I'm imagining so it's going to be. The, I'm imagining it's is... going to be the Care Bears movie too, isn't it? That's one of your. <laughs> no, okay, carry on. If only, but uh, it's going to be Highlander, <laughs> which be I remember thought... very. Very fondly from the time, very fondly indeed. There can be only one, which is, of course, a line from the movie, and also the cry of all the Highlander 2 denialists. Um, <laughs> oh, you, it's only two you deny? There's like a third, another, another sequel to deny, no, no, a no, whole no. TV no, no, series no, no, to deny. The point, is, yeah, the point <laughs> is that a Highlander 2 denialist cannot acknowledge the existence of a three or a or four, four because <laughs> they have numbers in them that are higher than two. And as two doesn't exist... Obviously, all the rest can't either. Well, that's why I'm most fondly when, I, when it was this period when it was there wasn't anything else that may have ruined the reputation of it. And I, I, I mean, I loved uh, Highlander. I just the concept of it was kind of quite out there, really. I, I hadn't really seen anything like that before, uh, in, including you know an, a, an Egyptian <laughs> speaking like that. <laughs> Oh, but, that's a Sean Connery. He, Jason Sean Connery. Statham. No, I mean, he's got Sean Connery, for, for yes. goodness sake. I Jason mean, Statham you know, appears to have taken up Sean Connery's bat on us. It doesn't um, matter what the character no. is, he's always a Cockney. Exactly. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I think, you know, it's a great idea. And, you know, it's not, it's a film that doesn't rely on many special effects at all. You know, it's more story driven. And it's obviously just, you know, just the idea of these characters going through time. Uh, appearing as a, you know in different uh, in different time periods um, was kind of fascinating. Un- unfor- uh, yeah, unfortunately, do you know why it's called Highlander? Uh, because he's he's from the Highlands. <laughs> no, that they were because the whole point is yes, he happens to be a Scottish immortal. He's Conor McLeod from the Clan McLeod. Exactly. Um, he happens to be a Scottish immortal, but of course, right. it makes it quite plain there are immortals everywhere. Yeah, and it was the original title of the script was The Immortals, okay. and then another film came out in 1986, which was like a drama, and they didn't want the two films confused, so they fixated on well, he's Scottish, call it Highlander. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, this became an albatross round the franchise's neck because from that point on, you always had to have some Scottish connection. Uh, yeah, Duncan MacLeod of the Clan MacLeod, Quentin MacLeod of the Clan MacLeod. <laughs> yes. Uh, Douglas MacLeod. <laughs> hey, you. Aesop MacLeod. I am Hesus MacLeod. So, unfortunately, because of the fact they wanted to bring the film out because they'd made it, and because someone else had beaten them to the punch with the name, they changed the name to something that was become, going to become a burden to the overall setup from henceforth. When I saw it, my uh, brother was convinced I would not understand the plot. So he explained the whole thing to me before I even started watching it, which I, I kind of regret, because I think I would have been able to pick up, oh, it's the same guy, he's just lived a very long time. Uh, of course, when you're young, when I saw this, 
decapitations on screen. You just don't get enough of them these days because you want your PG-13 rating. But my goodness, those were, those were, they had proper decapitations back in the day, didn't they? They didn't muck oh, yeah. around with like, quick, cut somewhere else when, whilst he's doing the slash. And then have the body arranged such a way you can't see the head when it's lying on the floor. No, no, this is, thunk, off it goes. Um, so, yes, yeah, sword fights ending in decapitation, always fascinating. Quickening, always fascinating. I think the first movie stands perfectly well on its own. It does not require any of its sequels, and they, they, they never happened. And also Queen. Uh, yeah, I think there's a real darkness to the first movie as well. There's kind of like this underlying, almost dirgy darkness mm. to it. Um, it is. And the Queen soundtrack thumping in the background kind of helps that. It kind of brings about this kind of, there's something so dark about this whole thing, really, that you, you know, that kind of fascinates you and kind of makes you go, you know, you, you're cheering for Conor McLeod, but at the same time, you're kind of like, there's, there's this real... Is this good or bad, or what? Who's bad and well, who's good? It is. It is good. Good versus evil. Because the whole reason that that uh, you know uh, Ramirez uh, trains McLeod at all is because you know he must prepare every mortals because the Kurgan is out there and the Kurgan is just frankly too bloody good at this game and a bit a bit of a nasty bastard to boot. And so mm. you don't you, what you know as much as it may come down to one of these days uh, Connor may have to take Ramirez's head or vice versa. The thing they can both agree on is the Kurgan cannot. Under any circumstances, be the one to win. So it, it, it is good versus evil, and I think Connery steals the show. By the way, um, you do kind of get this feeling, though, that is it because he's immortal, and there's this thing about his village casting him out, and you know, is it bad to be immortal? Is he evil as well, or is it just that? Well, it's it's certainly unnatural, him? but actually, yeah, the that's themselves are very superstitious. Uh, even the yeah, Kurgan will not break the rule of, about Holy Ground. Yeah, there is all this kind of superstition and all this kind of... And I kind of like that. I like anything that kind of throws that kind of superstition at you as well and kind of does all of that. So, yeah, I love that film. I think it's a great film. It's beautiful, you know, fantastic shots of Scotland looking, you know, amazing. Um, I just, yeah, I'd, you know... I, I always felt... And this is, the, this is going to seem ironic in, in reverse context. But um, I came to the actual watching Highlander quite late. And I always felt this is this, and I was therefore many other things existed, you know, in the same universe. But I always felt it could really do with a proper large expansion that it never got, even though there's all this associated Highlander fluff. I I think the series expanded the universe out for as, you know, as many immortals as we can stuff in it as possible. Sub, but that's the thing. What I meant is, it never got the expansion it deserved. Yeah, that's the important thing. It got expansions by the out the wazoo, including the fact that everybody hated Highlander two so much that the other Highlander stuff does its best to erase that from yeah as in in incompleteness. Uh, Well, and so we'll get. It knows what it wants to do. It just never manages to do it again after the first one ever. Pretty similar to Ghostbusters, in fact, where the things that made you love the first one and never adequately repeated i mean famously one of the sequels has a uh, this crazy trailer with uh, just all this amazing stuff happen that makes your jaw drop open until you watch a film and about 50 percent of it is not in the movie and when quizzed about this director said yeah we felt that the story was a bit boring so we just went and shot all this extra stuff that isn't in the movie to make the trailer look good Right. 
It's just like, uh, well, why not just make that movie that you were tra- mm-hmm. shooting a trailer for? You know, that might have been a better idea. Because, yeah, because than... Highlander 3, which is a great, was, was supposed to be the redemption of the franchise at the time, it's kind of very shallow. The, the scenes float by one to another, and the dialogue is very kind of basic. It almost feels like it's leading somewhere, but it never actually quite reaches anywhere other than like a battle that happens that resolves the number of immortals in the world again towards the end. It seems very, it's a very shallow film in my estimation. And the TV series, I suppose it had its moments. Uh, and I suppose if you were going like, to make the Hollander role playing game, you'd have to base it on the TV series. But uh, at the same time, it's like, uh, the first one was just so special. And it was so clever at the time as well. Um, and you read a route from a cloud, this, this, this Scottish idiot has, you know, fought his way against the other finest swordsmen of all of history to be one of the two left standing at the end. And you really kind of root for him, even though he's utterly emotionally shut down by, the, by his long, brutal struggle to survive. So, Ian, you must have a choice. You, there can be only one, there except for all the others you're going to pick. Well, you uh, know... Yes, of course. My old Well, uh, I cheekily or quickly choose two uh, because I very quickly just want to pass over Transformers the movie, which was enormously huge to me at the time, watched repeatedly and endlessly. Uh, but I think I, I think I sufficiently covered Transformers last week, uh, so I will instead go straight on to uh, another robot uh, flick in the shape of Short Circuit, which got many a repeat viewing. For me, when I was a kid, because when you're when you're a little boy, robots are fascinating. It's quite interesting that he gets his quirky personality. You know, he, he's, he is a sentient. He's a, he's a military piece of hardware that's made sentient by a lightning strike because that, that's how physics works. And you know, he gets his quirky personality because he watched television for a night. And you just know if you're doing the modern film these days, he'd plug himself into the internet, and that's where he gets his quirkiness from. I mean, he's a very goofy-looking robot, but there's this thing about him that's just. Can't quite take your eyes off it. I don't know what it was. I, I was kind of, kind of fascinated with the technology of him at the time, uh, and you know, uh, and you know, it's it's the age old tale of you know, robot goes rogue, uh, military freaks out and just wants to blow it up. But the scientist is like, no, no, this is fascinating. This is brilliant. This is robot sentient. My God, we need to study it. No, blow it apart. I want to go home and have some tea. And, and I think no. Okay. I was just going to say the thing I think that stood out was the fact that it actually, you know, it it is a robot. It's not like a person in a suit or a bit of special effects. You can believe, you know, obviously not every scene, but you can believe that that thing was moving around and you know doing that stuff. Yeah. It you could see the workings of it. You know, it wasn't that kind of science fictiony robot thing that we're kind of used to. So it had some kind of sense of believability into yeah, it, it, even though it's a crazy story. It, it did. It you was, could, you know, obviously. The idea of it having a personality and stuff is obviously completely ridiculous, but the actual thing itself, you know, was believable. And then also, you know, I think if the film has any message, it's that robot becomes sentient and goes, killing people is wrong. As a sentient being, I don't want to die, therefore killing is wrong. Why do I have to explain it to you clever humans that, that this is yeah. uh, this is all wrong? Um, and I, I suppose, you know... And it is, it, it is a very good robot. It is a very clever design. It's caterpillar tracks with a kind of with kind of a Z frame with a camera at the top, some arms for weapons, and a laser on the side. And it's, it's obviously very kind of. I mean, it's a bit fragile looking, but you can kind of see. Oh yeah, a prototype robot for the military. We kind of look a bit like that. Uh, and there's a lot of humour in the movie, and and probably a bit of Indian stereotyping going on as well in the movie. 
Um, well, the weird thing is that for many years, um, Americans didn't regard that as racism. No. They just thought that's what it is, you know, um, because racism was what you did against black people. But Indian people, who cares? <laughs> so that's why they got away with that, uh, because the societally, uh, the Indians may not have been happy about it, but nobody was listening to them. I was suddenly very excited about Short Circuit 2 sequel coming out and a bit disappointed when I actually went to see it because Short yeah, Circuit itself cool. was some I watched endlessly and repeatedly. What was her name? Felicity? What was the name of the woman in it? Oh. Stephanie. No. Stephanie. 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 So pink. Stephanie. It's like... <laughs> and Steve, <laughs> Steve Gutenberg again. He, p- perennial oh, yes. 80s uh, nice guy actor. Yeah, uh, just for me, it was a nice... So eventually he was beheaded by Tom no. Hanks, because there can be only one. <laughs> <laughs> Very likely. Anyway, yes, cute robot, it sold me as a child, and I watched Short Circuit repeatedly and laughed many times at his quips. Uh, your mother was a snowblower, you know. Yeah, late lips, your mother was a snowblower. <laughs> <laughs> Dog, yeah, um... canine, Matt. Anyway, yes, you guys, what do you think? I loved all the quips in it. It was very referencing Three Stooges. It was that kind of whole Three Stooge kind of comedy. So, And he became very lovable. He was a very lovable character. I remember him building another model of himself to send out the back, um, spoiler alert, people to be shot at, and everybody believing he was dead at the end, and actually genuinely feeling sad that, you know, they possibly just killed him. Yeah, so you do kind of have a fond affection for this robot. It's kind of weird because you it's a bit like Flight of the Navigator. You do suddenly realise that you're suddenly in love with something that's not actually real. It's a robot. Yes. So, yeah, it, it's got all the warmth that you want. What's really interesting about uh, Short Circuit, which is why I've held off until you've all gushed over its quirky comedy wonderfulness and the... Inclusion of Steve Gutenberg and, and Ali Sheedy, and, yeah, yeah, and that, all the wonderful family fun that is to be had with Short Circuit. That it actually started out as a sort of rip-off of the Terminator, and there are vestiges of the original script, such as the fact that his the, the, the number five is called number five because he is Saint Five, and Saint stands for something. It's a military acronym for something. Nuclear is the N, and I can't remember it. But yeah, there are lines that survived from the time when it was an action movie about an actual robot that goes rogue and, like, levels a city. Like, that overarching plot obviously remains, even though its angle is completely changed. But there are even things, there are lines of dialogue. The whole beginning sequence, before he gets zapped with lightning, is almost as it was. Um, in the action movie that it, it previously had been. So, yeah, I mean, that is what's, it, yeah, it's a very interesting movie for the fact that it started life quite publicly as a completely different type of project and ended up kind of sliding into being a family comedy, you know, by the back door. It wasn't, it was intended to be an action movie of an Arnold Schwarzenegger esque type or, you know, something like that. Uh, it's just, just, that's, that's what I find interesting about, about Short Circuit. I'm going to uh, change the tone slightly, not only slightly. There was a lot of fantasy and sci-fi around in uh, yeah. 1986. It was a good year to be a fantasy sci-fi fan. Uh, and I'm going to keep things rocking with a film that um, absolutely died on its ass when it came out. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. I think they saw me. They definitely they didn't see you, but they 
I think they definitely saw me. <laughs> yeah, we may be trapped. Um, but yeah, again, another quotable, hilarious, action-packed, fun movie that uh, kind of it concludes the sort of unofficial John Carpenter, Kurt Russell. Then the big three is The Thing, Escape from New York, and Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, yet when it came out, I mean, they, they on the famously on the commentary on the DVD. They remar- Kurt Russell remarks that he didn't even know it was coming out. He knew he'd made it. He knew that John Carpenter was editing it and that sometimes it was going to happen. And then he opened up a newspaper. Oh, that film's opening. And he actually rang up. And John Carpenter says, yeah, I remember. You rang me and said, do you know that film you made is coming out this weekend? Oh, do you know? And that's the thing that was so sad about, well, in retrospect. And the, I think there's a reasoning behind this on part of the distributors. If you if you remember, there was a film a few years before this, which we haven't discussed before, because I'm not sure how big you are on it. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Fifth Dimension. Mm. Is this ringing a bell with anyone? Yeah. Yeah. Big trouble at the end of Buckaroo Banzai. They really hoped to get enough traction behind that movie to make a sequel, and they tease uh, Buckaroo Banzai will be back again in. Buckaroo Banzai faces the the uh, menace from the east or something. Big Trouble in Little China's script started as Buckaroo Banzai faces. It was the sequel to the adventures oh, wow. of Buckaroo Banzai across the fifth dimension. Um, and then because of Buckaroo Banzai died at the box office and only later became a cult classic on cable TV, they changed the script into... So Big Trouble in Little China is the sequel to... and. and wow. Kurt Russell's character is actually supposed to be Buckaroo Banzai, but was huh. changed to be more Kurt Russell-y following uh, the thing and Escape from New York, that kind of vein of, of hero. And and yeah, and as well as which the other change they made to the script was that John Carpenter was very interested, as was Kurt Russell, in making an action movie that lampooned the other action movies of the time. Because he said, well, I got a bit sick of the fact that some kind of thing would happen and the action hero would just basically be the shepherd leading people from one end of the plot to the other and he would know everything and he would be... I wanted an action hero who, while he was pretty handy with his fists and good with a gun, knew absolutely nothing (laughs) about what was happening in the wider world or who any of the people were and gave sass back to these awesomely powerful Chinese gods because he just didn't know who they were and he just wanted his truck back and he wanted to go home and that was it. Um, And actually it was the sidekick that knew the underlying story and had to lead the action hero through all the beats of the movie. So, And that was very clever. But unfortunately, the film company did not believe in it and released it on like 12 screens for a week and then tried to bury it and then regretted that later on because when it became, became a massive, yes, cult massive cult classic movie. Yeah. It, is, so, it yeah. is another one of those movies that this friend I keep alluding to was really huge into. He was into Inner Jones, Golden Child... Big Trouble in Little China, definitely another one of the films I would have to watch around his place. I think it was kind of, kind of into, into that. Because it's, 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 again, it's supernatural, you know, and a hidden world thing going on as well. And, you know, the, the principal villain, it's interesting motivation. He is immortal. He wants to become mortal again and godlike at the same time, presumably. But also, but by, by actually achieving his goals, he makes himself vulnerable. That's what I thought. Somewhat ironic. Anyway, that's just me. But I think I think the old man makeup was some of, was some of the more impressive I've seen. You know, it, it's still hard because old 
Oh, aging makeup, it, it's very hit or miss. But I thought that old guy, old geezer makeup was, was a reasonably good job. And that, it seemed to me like a fun movie that kept going and, you know, the bad guy's henchman blows himself up and he realizes his boss is dead by literally holding his breath and expanding outwards until he goes pop. <laughs> yeah, there's some great kind of visual stuff going on there. I remember this very fondly, actually. That was definitely one of those kind of ones that I'd watch with my mates and we'd kind of enjoy. Um, yeah, you know, it's fun. And I'll say, like you said about, that's quite interesting about, uh, uh, the original plot line, but I mean, I, 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 I do like, I do like the kind of fact that, uh, as Leo, Leo was mentioning, the, the idea that he's just a complete idiot and has his own agenda all the way through. It's not about saving the day. So I, 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 I that's, I think that's what we like, really. Well, so there's, there's that one line that's stuck in my head when you know they, they, the the goons are running out to go get them, and he sort of picks up an automatic weapon and guns one of them down. He's like, his his buddy turns to him and goes, "Is that the first time you plug someone, huh?" It's like, "No, no, no, of course not." Yeah, I thought that was quite that stuck in my head. <laughs> well, my my favourite thing about it is that his final speech when he's got his truck back and he's leaving San Francisco is uh, is demonstration. They wanted to make it quite plain to everyone. They, he hasn't learnt. He hasn't no. grown. He, uh, well, let the chips fall where they may. And say, I look out into the rain and say, what have you got for me now? And then there's this big Chinese monster in the back of his it's a truck. Like, ah! And <laughs> you're just like, yep, this is all just going to keep going forever because he doesn't change. He's just the same idiot bumbling into these crazy supernatural plots. He's kind of like the anti-Sherlock Holmes. It's <laughs> just like... <laughs> Uh, getting through the adventure by dint of knowing nothing and not really caring. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but yes, Sue, the other thing uh, we want to know from you, Sue, is what is your next pick? I'm having real difficulty with my next pick because I don't want to go over old ground and do, you know, something that I put in my top horror movies. I don't want to do the, the one that I put in one of my top ten of the eight, well, top, top five. five of the 80s. So I don't want to do top them and I don't want to do Stand By Me. I want to do a film that was massive in America, very little regard over here in the UK. I adore it, but I doubt any... Well, I think you've seen it because I made you watch it, but I doubt the other two have ever seen it, and that's Solar Babies. Uh, right, I will clear this up for the, uh, everyone. Uh, has anyone else seen Solar Babies? No. Uh, I haven't, no. Right, Sue, walk us through Solar Babies. Solar Babies is a Jason Patrick, Jamie Gertz film basically set in the future where they are running out of water and it's the water is controlled by a corporation basically and there's this group of teenagers who like are friends and who work for the corporation in their like slave camp basically who escape because of the help of like uh, the only way I can describe it is a glowing ball alien called Bondi who takes them on a journey to try and free the water, basically, of the world and discover who they are as well while they're doing that. It's a great little film. It's an absolutely beautiful film. It has a lot of action sequence in it. It has one of the most gruesome death scenes I've seen in a long time in it. It's got robots. It's got fantasy. It's got everything you could want from one of those kind of... If I recall correctly, roller skating was one of those... Roller skating, Roller skating was big. Um... It's got this is a glowing white alien ball. It's got you know. I think the point ancient of, tribes. Yeah. It's got 
It's got a Mad Max vibe to it. It's got futuristic stuff to it. It's got technology robots. It's got all sorts of things to it. And yet, for some strange reason, wasn't very popular in this country. Well, I, I think was massive in the states. It's one. Of, it's a very well loved film in the in in the states. And if I talk to anybody in America about it, they all know this film, and they all they all watch it all the time, and they all know this film, and it's on regularly on TV in the states. Uh, England seemed to have ignored it, and yet I think it's a brilliant film and one of the best films ever done for that kind of genre for teenagers, especially. I think it's more of a going into the older child teenage genre. I don't think it's a very good young children's film. I've got to admit that because it's too harsh and it's too gruesome. But I think it has a Mad Maxness to it. I think it has a, it's got an almost tank girlness to it it's got kind of that kind of quality to it as well that kind of futuristic kind of the world is kind of messed up thing going off and it's it's kind of harsh but at the same time it's kind of fun i think that the thing that probably killed it over here was that um if you go back to uh <clears throat> young sherlock holmes the year before that kind of dive bomb because i think as we recounted in our 1985 show, there were some pretty gruesome deaths in that yeah. uh, because of the sort of uh, yeah. strange Egyptian poison death thing with the hallucinations. Yeah. And Solar Babies does have this one epic death scene, um, which kind of snuck past in the States. They kind of let it go because it was a standout moment in the, the rest of the movie. It was very much in that kind of teen, teen drama kind yeah. of sci-fi vain and in the uk we're now we've been burned by this before we're not gonna you know we could, i think that possibly the bbfc took a bit of flack for the uh the pg that young sherlock holmes got so they just slapped a higher rating on it then the cinemas were like oh, this is a kid's film but now kids can't go and see it so they didn't bother to put it on many screens and that effectively you killed it over get, here. You can barely get it on DVD over here. I don't think you can get it on we DVD over here. We had to, we it. had to import your copy, yes, yeah. from from the states. So yeah, it's uh, it's an you know I obviously the problem with I have is that I only saw it well above the age of thirty five, so I could see the kind of thing that it is, but I I couldn't really evolve an instant childhood affection for a film I didn't see till. You know, after well after the year two thousand, so yeah, that 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 is an unfortunate thing. But yes, you did your your football team, so you get to pick. Justin, do you have an obscure? Uh, I am going to pick one. Can... This is something I've recently seen, and I think if anything sums up the eighties in terms of a look, it's this film. It's a film called The Wraith. Ah, uh, yes, we have we. Everyone, I think, in the room except Ian has recently seen this movie. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not so choosing it because it's the best film I've ever seen, but I think it just encapsulates the time perfectly. Um, it's it's this kind of crazy film about... Well, you know, predominantly, it's a film specifically created so they can shoot people racing around in cars in the middle of the desert um, with this some kind of ludicrous plot about this kind of space traveller who's somehow getting revenge for someone who's died and he's he's then kind of bumping these off by by people losing at races and cars blowing up it's, I mean, film, it's fairly yeah. it's fairly ludicrous it's a film that if anyone ever asked me you know what's an exploitation flick does that mean they're exploiting people in it like no what they're doing is they're exploiting the means at their disposal and freestyling the the sort of movie out of the available 
stuff that they have. And the race is a perfect example. First of all, they have a desert setting and the permission to film in this desert town, so they do that. They have access to a number of kind of classic muscle cars, so they, they exploit that. They have a, a few days with Charlie Sheen. Yes. Um, so they managed to get this Charlie's thing where... filming Platoon. At the yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically, Charlie Sheen's face appears far more rarely than Charlie Sheen's character, hence yes. the mirrored visor of his character's, you know, sports car. And yeah, basically they kind of make... Now, the thing about it for me is that when you say, oh, well, the, this is 1986, and in 1986 we have this cheap supernatural uh, thriller called The Wraith about race car driving, and that's going to come out. And then you've got Flight of the Navigator, which must have had a pretty similar budget and provenance. You're just like, well, you might have done the best that you could, but some guys somewhere else were doing a hell of a lot better Absolutely. with the same kind of resources, so... I think that's that's what it is. It's a more of an interesting failure. I think that's where we are reaching with the list now into the the films that didn't that were more of a misfire but are worth talking about. And the race definitely comes. I didn't even know. I don't think that even came over to the UK. It's now right. available on Netflix for for avid Charlie Sheen fans. The many ways in which they can avoid doing close ups of Charlie Sheen. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Ian, I take it you have no experience in this cinematic. <laughs> no, no, this masterpiece has slipped me by. Um, it is notable uh, for the fact that I think it's one of the earliest uh, screen appearances of uh, the actress who would later come to notoriety as Audrey Horn from Twin Peaks, Sherilyn Fenn. I think fans of Twin Peaks and indeed of Audrey Horn herself would have to note that when Sherilyn Fenn is not being Audrey Horn, She's far more ordinary. Still a perfectly decent actress, but um, it's interesting when someone gets defined to such just such a degree by a single role that they have played. Um, especially bearing in mind the fact that I'm not sure she was even particularly affectionate for that role. She didn't really enjoy being in Twin Peaks, but yet this is what people remember her for. So yes, there we go. That, that is the race. Ian, something, talk with confidence on something you actually know something about. Well, confidence is the problem. Uh, there's lots of films here which I feel are very subject-worthy, of which I know very little about. I've never really seen The Three Amigos. I'm aware of what the premise is. I haven't seen it. Ferris Bueller's Day of Day Off, I've seen it. It's fine. Uh, but I, I have not watched it in 20 years, but the internet continues to quote it at me. So, you know, also Top Gun, which we covered in, I think, Sue's top films as well. I don't know if you want to revisit Top Gun at all. I think what we, what we might do is take a moment to lump in together. Yeah, these are the things that were happening. Because, I mean, Ferris Bueller and Pretty in Pink are slightly outside of our remit as but a genre John podcast. But, yeah, but this is a year... This is, I think this is possibly, even though he's had some high moments before, this was John Hughes' zenith, I think. I think after this, John Hughes kind of went out. I mean, it occurred to me after all the John Hughes talk, in the past couple of podcasts and in, you know previous, John Hughes is an interesting figure to me because if you think, say, talk about uh, other filmmakers like Steven Spielberg, Quentin Tarantino, Tim Burton, auteur directors who've had a great impact on culture and society, you know what they look like. I don't really know what John Hughes looks like. I, I think I think he might have a beard. I'm not sure. I do. 
Sue does. He does have a beard and he's slightly podgy and he has black. Right, there we go. So there um, we go. But he's not, of course, with us anymore, bless him. No, so. but, um, yeah, I mean, John Hughes was massive uh, as as a filmmaker, but, yeah, he's he's kind of like, I don't really know much about John Hughes. Does anyone else? Not no. really. No. And yet his films are, you know, Weird Science, Planes, Trains, Automobiles. All of these films are massive cultural touchstones. And usually, I mean, we know bits about Steven Spielberg. We know maybe more than we want to about George Lucas, you know, <laughs> and, and Quentin Tarantino. I know nothing really about John Hughes. But I've started to pick out following our discussion about, like, weird science and having watched Pretty in Pink this week, just, you know, to refresh my memory. That I think, yeah, he does have a very... Si- he was obviously, uh, to refer specifically to Pretty in Pink. In fact, it's weird because... Ducky in Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller in Ferris Bueller's Day Off are essentially two sides of the same character. That um, Ducky in, in Pretty in Pink is, is essentially a loser, but he's a dreamer. He's, a, he's, he's trying to make himself more epic than he actually is in reality. And Ferris Bueller is like what Ducky wants to be, this guy who's that like the, the Don Quixote. And, yeah, and when we were talking about weird science and this idea of People who went to school in America but didn't fit in any particular clique and just drifted through. That these are the, all the iconic characters from John Hughes movies. So it is interesting that even in filmmaking, he produced all this amazing stuff that's become culturally relevant. And the man himself, don't really know much about him. He he made these movies. That's what we know. So yeah, so that that was about. And obviously, we talked at length about Top Gun and planes and all of that yes, kind of well, stuff. Yes, well, I think I think. Suits. The last the thing on this list that I can talk about with any authority, probably, yes. or at least a bluff of authority, would be The Fly. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, which uh, I watched as a kid and afterwards was quite disturbed. Uh, my brother took a photograph of me lying on the sofa, looking a bit shocked. I have, have since gone back and seen the original 1950s uh, sequel and the sequel to the sequel with Vincent Price in them. My goodness, completely different films, not even worth including in the same conversation. Uh, the Fly, pretty definitively, I think, you know, when Eric Stoltz was doing Fly 2, he basically copied uh, Jeff Goldblum's shivering, I'm losing all my body parts acting uh, like a photocopier. Yes, it's Cronenberg, very good at doing visceral, very good at doing body shock. And I suppose mm. that The Fly is the ideal movie for him to do a remake of. I think what's interesting about The Fly is that it's definitely David... I would say it's definitely David Cronenberg's best-known movie generally, that people know this movie, even if they're not really familiar with David Cronenberg. And weirdly, this is the point where people meet... David Cronenberg has got this weird worldview. I mean, that's, that's quite evident from all of the other work that he's done, is that many of the things... You know, people don't respond to existence the same way. Videodrome, possibly, which is possibly arguably his finest work, is not is a cult thing. It's not mainstream. And The Fly taps that exact point where David Cronenberg's imagination and real people's fears all come together in the same place. It is an accessible thing, though. Technology is just teleportation through two different cabinets. We can get this. It's just that magic trick, but done with science. 
I don't think it's all the kind of horrificness of when it goes wrong, like he, one of his chimps gets turned inside out. Uh, and, you know, he, he absorbs a fly, or rather the fly absorbs him, and so he slowly dissolves into a fly, horrifically so at the end, uh, until, you know, in the end, he's trying to try to throw in uh, what's-her-name into the booth as well, and it all goes wrong, he gets fused with half a cabinet, and then he's begging to have his brains blown out. And, you know, the fact he dissolves someone's foot off at the ankle with acid. All these things just kind of stick in my head. Vomit acid. Let's not forget that, because everyone knows flies dissolve their food with acid that they vomit Oh, yes. I also remember Jeff Goldblum's penis uh, in in his medicine cabinet, along with other body parts that are dropped off. That that, that stays vividly in my head. So it's a collection of very vivid images. And I still have this kind of fear, like if I have a very dark, if I have like a cut on my leg or something, I still remember now, like long prongs of hair might grow out of it because I've got fly DNA in me or something. It, it's it is a film that gets under your skin. It's a part of the and fun. I think if you would, because of I've listened to quite a lot of David Cronenberg talking about his other features, that the reason he managed to get people with with so you know disturbed by this movie was because his approach to it is probably freestyling from his talking about existence and stuff like this that he was just fascinated by this idea that when you mix those two dna's jeff goldblum's scientist character's identity would be corrupted Mm. by a genetic change it's this kind of it's really an argument about nature versus nurture that it doesn't matter what jeff goldblum believed his moral framework before he got mingled with a fly the the genetic change would also produce changes in his personality and that all of this visual gumph is just there to say you wouldn't be the same person you'd be a different being and that's why it comes back to this thing Brundlefly, he's no longer Seth Brundle and the fly is no longer the fly, they've become this new creature that is in between the two and takes not just because you think of a ha- I mean, that's the most fascinating thing. The idea that you take a, something as small as a housefly and say, yeah, but you both get 50% of the brain. And it's like, oh, okay, then that's not so good, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it definitely a, a hallmark movie uh, moment. Yeah, fly, absolutely. Because it's where a very cultish, obscure piece of horror meets up with more mainstream. There was a lot of horror that year. If you look at 86 in general, there was a lot of horror, but on different levels. I mean, we had Maximum Overdrive running people over with cars, and we had Stand By Me doing a psychological trip chill, and we had... But that was the one that really kind of took the high, kind of the whole body horror and the whole kind of, you know, it kind of got under, as you said, got under your skin and kind of got into you a little bit because you were afraid that something was going to get. I mean, if you think about 1986 being the year that brought you both the fly and aliens. Wow. That, I mean, really groundbreaking conceptual stuff. Um, the like of which we have probably never seen again. And, at the moment, doesn't look likely we're going to see in the near future because people just haven't got that in them anymore. Weirdly, uh, Justin, your thoughts on the fly? Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember being terrified, right? And I think it's just that very, very—it's that, that horror films hadn't quite so hadn't been so real. Like you'd see, you know, blood and gore, but he, David Cronenberg is kind of literally going, "Look, opening opening up this festering wound and letting you look into the horror of it. It's it's grotesque, you know. It's kind of." 
yeah, it's it's freaky. And, and Jeff Goldblum is is you know, his performance is quite. He, you know, he's obviously reveling the fact he's playing this horrible half stage live creature. It's it's very disturbing. I, like I think there's the, I think there's the 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 cle- you know there's a cleverness in the script where when it first happens he feels better. He feels good. Yeah. He gets stressed, he? So he gets stressed. And that point, that point in the movie, and then there's the scene where he goes out and he arm wrestles a guy and breaks the guy's arm. And it's like he's a superhero or something. But you tell it, yeah, you're telling the audience there's something because it's. But you see see the bones break and pierce the skin and stuff. It's not pleasant. Yeah. You know, it's not like, whoa, this guy's great. You're like, oh, wait a minute. This is really bad. Yeah, it's the fact that he's become casually sociopathic he doesn't care about that anymore and that's where you start to realize and that's the point that's the point of the note that it strikes it's the fact that you are not you anymore in fact the fly kind of goes on a line from the thing um but right way back in the early 80s where it's this idea that things that infect you make you not you anymore and you, you, you your personality is changed by arbitrary environmental circumstances and that you can't construct a, a bulletproof personality. Things can come in, uh, come come in, and ruin your identity. And that's what really gets under your skin. All of the makeup and the rubber and the the liquids are just yeah, showing I, that. I think the idea of losing yourself is obviously a a, a big fear, isn't it? Yes. Who your personality, who you are, and it's obviously some, something that people are worried about with certain things going around today. You know, Alzheimer's and that kind of stuff is is always going to be your identity is really the only thing you've got left. So it's the only thing you can cling on to, isn't it, really? As that hits both a high point and a low point at the same time, and as we've kind of left... I mean, there are things here that are definitely worth talking about. Uh, Platoon was out in 1986. Yeah, so it's amazing that Platoon and The Wraith were both out in the same yeah. year. <laughs> Charlie Sheen doing a full gamut of, of all the stuff that he did. Absolutely um, amazing film. Uh, Peggy Sue Got Married. Is Again, a film I love, and I think an underrated film, because I think if people... I don't think people realise how brilliant Nicolas Cage is in that film for a start, and I really don't think people realise how beautifully directed that film is. I think... The whole time travel element of that film is absolutely stunning. I think Peggy Sue Got Married. I think, people, I think people think it's like a romantic thing and they don't realise yeah. how actually complex yeah. that film is. Peggy Sue Got Married suffered from the fact that the way that they pitched it to the get the get audiences in, mm. and I don't think that kind of worked correctly, mm. was there's a, it's like Back to the Future for adults. Mm. And that, yeah, that was not the way to sell it that movie. It's not that, but it is, it is a great film in its own right. Um, so. But yeah, so we've got a few things that possibly we can't talk about with, with great authority. I mean, one thing I wish we could talk about, but I doubt anyone has seen it, is the Toby Hooper remake of Invaders from Mars. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. That was a canon movie. So same people that bought you Cyborg and uh, Masters of the Universe and... Yeah, those people. But and apparently it's a very good movie. But I've never had an opportunity to okay. catch it. Um, also, Mr. Space <clears throat> Camp is on there. Oh yeah, Space yeah. Camp. Another massive film. Another which, robot. Another which, kids. It's it's a disaster movie in space. We think was actually yeah. what it's actually about because the shuttle goes up not by accident because it's because uh, what's robot it? Robot Yeah, yeah. Felix Ro- programmed the robot and the robot goes off. But um, I think we want to. Con- I want to conclude the episode by just taking a quick draw through the gutters of 1986 uh, and bring to your attention. Let us let us return 
from whence we started this whole adventure. Howard the Duck is available on Netflix. And uh, in the interests of research, I did, in fact, watch it. So you quite like it, don't you? I so? don't mind Howard the Duck. Right. I have, an, I, I, have, I have some issues with Howard the Duck, but I have a small affection for Howard the Duck as well. Because... I kind of think it's amusing, and I kind of think it's got its own little... I think it's got its own characteristics that deserve to have some credibility. But I also realise how completely and utterly stupid it is, and it's, how completely and utterly pointless it is. It's surprisingly how, adult, considering it's about... And, and how duck. adult it is. Yes. You know, I'm aware of, like, you know, she's basically making out with a duck. You know what I mean? It's yes. a bit, the know. underlying uh, issue of bestiality and looking bestiality through his wallet and finding a duck condom. Which is interesting because it means that Lee Thompson, in two years, managed to be in a family movie about incest and then a family movie about bestiality with a duck. So. <laughs> <laughs> and she went up into space in space camp. Oh, so yes, yeah. There you go. Um, <laughs> so, um, Justin, you... Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I saw this several years later and just kind of looks perplexed at it and I, I honestly don't really know what to make of it it doesn't really hang together very well as a film well no it's the problem the, the problem I, while i was watching the movie i was also looking at the wikipedia entry because what, one of the things i wanted to know because it wouldn't be ironic if howard the duck for all of its infamy was in fact one of the first faithful comic book adaptations right and from what i could work out it kind of is and it kind of isn't. Howard the Duck was the idea of there's a guy called Steve Gerber who's done quite a few weird comic projects and somehow got Marvel and DC to pay for them. Um, I mean, he, he did a short comic book series called Nevada, which was actually born of an idea. There was a throwaway gag in Howard the Duck what that he did, what, one of the scripts, about a stripper with an ostrich in Las Vegas. And he wrote a whole comic book series called Nevada, which went for like five or six issues before it got cancelled, which is the closest comic book thing I've seen to an, an adaptation of a role-playing game famous around these parts, these parts being my living room, called Over the Edge. It is the closest thing to a comic book of Over the Edge that exists, which is great for those people who are fans of incredibly niche cult role-playing games, but not much good for anyone else. So I'm surprised Steve Gerber continued to get work because he is he's kind of like the Terry Gilliam of comics. Right. Which, if you think about the fact that Terry Gilliam doesn't have much money and he works in the film industry and he's always skating on the, the edge of, of going off a precipice into obscurity, Steve Gerber's working in the world of comics and he's and that, that kind of fringe figure. And yeah. Howard the Duck was kind of his idea. And Howard the Duck, as a Marvel comic, when it first started out, was a genuine, like, Howard the Duck was kind of a parody of other... Marvel titles, but Howard did have like powers, and he did he fought right. intergalactic menaces, and he did all of this stuff, but in a kind of sly, tongue-in-cheek, with this kind of underground comics sensibility. Yes. So in a way, the movie kind of does bring that forward because all the adult material is this way of the the writer trying to communicate that Howard Duck was a kind of adult figure. He's like Felix the Cat of the underground. Yeah comic scene. On the other hand, the actual plot with Jeffrey Jones getting taken over by a weird rubber alien and doing all that stuff, that's also kind of from the comic. The, the difficulty is that the scriptwriter really didn't get, and in fact go went on record as stating that she didn't get 
in a way where it's like you don't even know you don't know this. Steve Gerber always intended Howard the Duck to be a kind of wry commentary on the idea that a comics fan was living out this power fantasy through comics, and Howard the Duck kind of accepted that he wasn't what they were thinking of. They were thinking of Spider-Man and Iron Man, and yet at the same time, here he was fighting away against intergalactic menace, and and then you know having a job and having a girlfriend who was human. That that yeah. is the kind of thing that only really works in comics. But the scriptwriter for the actual movie said, "Hey, it's about a duck from outer space who fights aliens. It's not supposed to be existential." At which point, if Steve Gerber had been there, he probably would have slapped her across the face because, like, it is supposed to be existential. That's kind of the irony of the whole situation. So yeah, Howard yeah. the Duck the movie just barely skates by. It puts all the things in the right place, but it misses the essential core of what Howard the Duck was supposed to be about. Having said all that, who the hell, apart from George Lucas, thought that a Howard the Duck movie (laughs) was going to be a big seller? I mean, really? (laughs) I think that the duck does look pretty bad, doesn't it? Well, no, but the duck is exactly right. They got the duck right, except it's kind of creepy. When you take it off in the comic... He looks fine. Oh, yeah, in comic but Howard the Duck is absolutely fine, because you can have anthropomorphic walking, talking ducks. But when you have stick, get, get, get a child, or I presume a, a short person, uh, and, and stick... stick a the, number of stuntmen is actually who played Howard the Duck, with a voiceover, obviously. Obviously. But, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I it, just think it's, it's, all... it's one of those... It's one of those examples, you know, it could have been better... It's just a badly made film, I think. It just doesn't hang together as a film. Oh, well, no, and it, really, if you look at it against a lot of the other stuff from the 80s, it's no worse than a lot of other stuff. I would say there's worse. It's, 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 it's more infamous it's, it's, than it has, than it, is fair yes. for it. Yeah. That's true. Mm. Yeah. Okay. There's worse films out there. In fact, there's worse films being made recently than that. Well, there were worse films that year that were made that people took a little bit more seriously. Only a little bit, mind you. Yeah. I want to just mention Cobra with yeah. Sylvester Stallone, which is without a doubt the most turgid action movie, uh, with the exception of Raw Deal, which I talked about in 1985. I'm not going back there. But Raw Deal and Cobra, really, uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone, really did battle it out for the bottom of the barrel in 1986. Stallone was doing it because he'd signed this exclusive picture deal with Canon. What Schwarzenegger's excuse for Raw Deal was, I cannot imagine. Mm. But these are two of the worst action movies ever made. And the more that they try not to be... There's a bit at the beginning of Cobra where Sylvester Stallone basically all but assaults a guy. Marion Cobretti, incidentally, is a cop and a damn fine one. But if you park in his parking spot outside (laughs) his Miami apartment... He gonna have some words. Right. And then this guy who he basically bullies into get out of my parking space at the beginning. It's alright, you can do it because he's a street guy who hangs around and swears and stuff. So it's fine for Cobra to beat him up. Or later on in the film, it shows that when the guy has proper respect for Cobra's, uh, you know, social status and obvious importance as a big, muscly, sociopathic cop. They're like joking with each other. But it's that kind of joking you do when you're not sure if the bully's going to put your head down the toilet again. <laughs> the guy's like, hi there, Mr. Cobra. How can I do for you, Mr. Cobra? <laughs> We're having a joke. Yeah, you're still pathetic, aren't you? <laughs> it's just like, what the hell is this? Oh, 
Cobra is just a terrible, terrible action movie. And yeah, this wasn't a good, you know, Top Gun really rescued the year in terms of action movies. So we should be very grateful for that. For that straight action stuff, 1986 was a terrible year for moviegoers, really. <laughs> have, has anyone else seen, I mean, apart from Sue, who had to suffer through it with me when I got I don't to... think I have. I remember playing the video game, but that's about it. Oh, that was, that was a terrible video game as well. Yeah, so um, that's, that's, that's all I have to say on it. I think the most notable thing, apart from the fact that as well, Bridget Nielsen, I mean, crying out loud, that is, of course, because so Stallone and Nielsen were married for a bit, and that's where they you know, first encountered one another. And yeah. you just, just see on the... That's, I mean, you know, these days it's worth watching just to go, how how the hell did these two think a relationship was a good idea? What the hell <laughs> this is, is the movie on? they fell in love over. You can see how that relationship yeah. was doomed. Oh, really bad. But what is that? The main bad guy in Cobra is an actor. I think he's called Brian Johnson, who is famous. Like his, I think the thing that people will remember him most for is the fact that he played many, many vampires and demons in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. TV series. He's this guy, he's, you know, mid, between six foot and seven foot, has this massive face and a really weird deep voice that sounds like this. He played an, a vampire in the very first episode of Buffy and later on went on to portray various demons. If you saw this guy, you would know, you go, oh, that guy. Um, mm-hmm. He has something of the Richard Keel about him. But what's really weird about it is that this is a film made in 1986. This year, he played a biker in an episode of Perception, uh, the, the television series about the schizophrenic detective. This guy doesn't look any different. It's 25 years later, and this guy looks exactly the same, almost. It, it's, it's obviously being six foot five and horrendously scary is working out for the guy. <laughs> So there we go. So that that I think that brings us to the end. Of, oh, we haven't even talked about Little Shop of Horrors, the musical. Yeah. Well, there are. A few. It was a packed year. It yes. Is, yeah. I, I mean, you know, yeah. We'll, we'll no doubt revisit these things, uh, particularly as obviously, therefore, with Labyrinth and Little Shop of Horrors being in the same year, Jim Henson was very busy. <laughs> Well, you, know, you know, Stephen King got a lot of going off there. He got Maximum Overdrive and Stand By Me going yeah. off that year. So yeah, you've got quite a few little weird horror, obscure second-rate horror movies going on. But there. the story, the story always remains the same with these mid-eighties years. We talk about a lot and we leave some stuff behind yeah. to come back to well, later on. Times yeah. are lean. I, th- I think, you know, one place you can go to to talk to us about the fact we haven't mentioned the, the movie FX at all today, or Vamp with Grace Jones, or what else have we missed out here? My good, Blue Velvet, who cares? <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. If you want to talk about Crocodile Dundee, you can go to our Facebook page, uh, which is our community hub, which you can find at Facebook slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. That's 80s as numbers, 80s kids please go there please like our page you want to grow our community we post our podcasts up there as well as links and occasionally we have discussions but of course podcasts are what it's all about for that you can go to the podomatic page point your browser to 80s kids that's 80s as in letters so e-i-g-h-t-i-e-s kids.podomat.com please go there and please subscribe to a podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download direct to your PC for dark reasons of your own. Our um, older shows, however, can be found on dot, dot, dot. Uh, yes, they can be found on my blog, eliostableford.com, which, uh, I mean, I doubt by this time, the time this airs, we will have moved. 
to a proper archive page. But one will be coming very shortly. Uh, but at the moment, you can get all the older shows from there. Or you could indeed just go to the Internet Archive um, and search for 80s kids, because you'll probably get some of them that way. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be very good at grouping them, even though I've put the 80s kids as being the author of all of them, weirdly. Um, but anyway, yeah, so... Um, that's that's where you can get the older shows. At the time that this airs, there'll probably be about three weeks for you to enjoy my fairy tale serial for uh, 2013 in the dying weeks of the year, um, which is at bridgetowntales.blogspot.com. Uh, the early episodes are garnished with illustrations by... Uh, that'd be by me, uh, examples of which you can find in other of my stuff at my DeviantArt page, Justin T. I think that uh, basically, uh, if anyone invents a time machine, if you could let the wife know, because I think we know which year she would be going I'll, back I'll, to. I'll be in 86. Right? <laughs> but but for... have we convinced Ian that uh, yes. the world is not so bad in 86? Yeah, have we convinced you that, that it's worth going on, even with the existence of Howard the Duck in the world? Well, you know, I think ultimately you just have to accept that every so often a film comes out that isn't very good. And occasionally you have to talk about it on a podcast like a grown-up. Yes, indeed. So there we go. Um, That's all there is to say then. Uh, As Howard the Duck never said, that's all, folks. So bye-bye. Farewell. Goodbye.